Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be able to chat to you today. I'm sitting here in sunny, humid Brisbane, and you're sitting there in, in sounds like sunny, humid Melbourne. Uh, perhaps uh, to get started, why don't you just let us say a little bit about your current professional responsibilities? Um, thanks, Richard, for the opportunity. Um, currently, um, I retired about, um, I don't know, it's a bit of a blur with COVID, but I think it was November 2020. Right. So I've been um, waiting for COVID to pass so that I can actually do some of the things I plan to do in my retirement, like travelling particularly to see one of my sons who lives in Hong Kong, but that hasn't eventuated yet. So um, I'm kept busy with a few different things that I do. Um, obviously, the Vet Development Centre is is a very important role, being the chair of that board, which I've been since, I think it was mid-2018. Um, and um, that's that's not overly time consuming, but when it's when I'm required, then you know Martin and I, who's Martin, who's the CEO, put our heads together and work on whatever it is. Um, uh, before I retired, I was the, the chief operating officer at Ames Australia, which is a um, uh, government business enterprise in Victoria, but it basically provides services nationally to recently arrived migrants and refugees. And the reason I worked there, having a background in education, is that um, there was a really strong commitment, and there still is at Ames, though I'm not there. There's plenty more people there who are very committed to settlement of recently arrived people in the country and education is a key component of that, not only in learning English, but learning about the country, learning about the workforce, learning about how you survive in, in Australia and what do you have to do when you get here um, and what, how do you build networks is really important. So that was my role there and that was um, uh, for about eight years before I retired. Prior to that, um, I was the CEO at Tasmanian Polytechnic for a few years until uh, the government decided to dissolve that organisation and create a, a new approach to vocational education in Tasmania. Um, and prior to that, I worked at Victoria University and then various tapes in senior management roles, but started out as a uh, a teacher in, in um, literacy mainly. Uh, in tapes for adults who were learning to read or or preparing to enter the workforce. And so education's always been a passion in one way or another, but also um, how leaders are, are developed in organisations such as those that I worked in. And that's what I um, did a doctorate with Middlesex University in um, about 10 years ago, which was all about developing educational leadership through work-based learning. And, and in many ways, I guess that's indicative of, of vet development centres' commitment to professional learning and doing it in a work-based context where people are um, 
applying what they learn and learning through working with each other, which is very important in in any kind of professional learning, but for educators particularly, I think. Okay, great. Um, tell us a little bit more about VDC, the you know uh, the scale of the organisation and uh, the, the mandate of the uh, uh, the type of people that you are serving, etc. Okay, so um, Vet Development Centre actually started as TDC TAFE Development Centre, and it was implemented um, by Minister Lynn Kosky. Um, many years ago, she's a, a, a minister at the time in Victoria because she saw that there was a need, and I think the sector was crying out for professional learning to support, you know, a pretty dynamic and evolving um, vocational education sector and links to industry and so on. Um, it changed a vet development centre to reflect the fact that um, it's not only in tapes where vocational education and professional learning happen, and in fact, um, we now have many, many people who participate in our programs and workshops and so on, who are working in further education for adults, in TAFEs, in private education providers, in schools. So a whole range of, of um, people who recognise that um, being engaged in their own learning benefits their learners as well, which is essentially... I guess, the precept for a lot of what VDC does. It's not a large organisation. In fact, um, in terms of government enterprises, I guess it's a fairly small one. The staffing varies from about 10 to 15 people, depending on what projects we're working on. Um, it's a company limited by guarantee, and the Minister for Training and Skills in Victoria is the only member. However, the expectation is that that VDC operates as a commercial entity um, and while it has funding agreements um, that are negotiated with the Department of Training and Skills in Victoria on a, a regular basis, uh, quite a significant proportion of its revenue comes from our own activity in trying to pursue that, you know, quality, innovative, professional learning approach. And uh is it something that's unique to Victoria or is, are there equivalents in the other states in Australia? Um, there are other organisations certainly that are engaged in professional learning um, activity for vet professionals, but there are no other states that have um, a ministerial company to do it, which is, is a, we see a great plus because what it does is provide people with an assurance that there's a whole um, quality assurance and, and regulatory regime around what we do. We have to report to ASIC as a company, um, but we also have to provide an annual report to the minister. We're edited by the Victorian um, Auditor-Generals each year. So um, it is quite unique. And in fact, some of what we do is to for or for clients in other states, not just Victoria, although that's our mandate is to provide it for Victoria. But um, I think at our last annual teaching conference, we had um, quite a few uh, people participate who are from other states and from New Zealand as well. Um, so I guess that's, that's indicative of the reputation that comes from what we do, but also comes from being um, 
endorsed, I suppose, by the Victorian government. Okay, great. And uh, how long has BDC actually been in existence for? Um, well, if we go back to TDC, which was its predecessor, I think that was round about, hmm, testing me now, early 2000s. Actually. Okay. Um, I've been at VDC on the board since 2015. Right. And um, I think it's had about four CEOs in, in its life. So it's not a high turnover organization. Yep. Um, and the people who are on the board are diverse, um, come from lots of different backgrounds, but all have a pretty strong commitment to the importance of of people's professional learning and the importance of vocational education to the economy, I guess. Okay, fantastic. We'll come back and talk a little bit more about VDC later in the conversation, but I'm interested in going back, you've given us sort of a, a quick potted history of your, you know, professional experience, but uh, tell us a little bit more about, you know, where things began for you, uh, where you were born, mum and dad, early life, et cetera. <laughs> um, well, I was born in Melbourne. Right. Um, and I'm the daughter of um, a teacher, my mum, although she'd stopped teaching by then. Back in those days, once you were married and had kids, you weren't allowed to teach anymore. But um, she has always had a strong commitment to education. And my father um, had a senior role in um, manufacturing, but he was an um, immigrant from the UK. So he did a, a 10 pound pond. Right. Um, and he'd arrived and, um, they met up and married and um, probably I had a pretty um, privileged childhood. Um, we lived in one of the new outer suburbs in Melbourne before we moved um, through my father's work to Sydney and spent some time there. Came back to Melbourne. Um, I was in the middle of um, secondary school by then. Uh, and then um, while I was at Monash, um, after school, my father was relocated again, um, to Adelaide. So my parents went to Adelaide and I stayed here and, um, got married and finished my degree. And having always said to my mother, when she said, you'd make a good teacher, I'd say, I'll never do that. I then enrolled in a debate at the end of my degree and thought, oh, funny. <laughs> when I say that. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, um, through doing um, my diploma, first diploma in education, um, one of my teaching placements was actually in, in an environment where um, I had a supervisor who was very strongly committed to a lifelong learning approach rather than seeing school as a sort of beginning and end section of people's lives. And so I guess that's where I got interested. And my first, um, I worked in a tech school in Victoria, which for those people who are listening, who, uh, remember the tech school environment, they'll sort of understand that. Um, but my first role in adult education was actually at Swinburne university where they had a TAFE, what they call the TAFE division. Um, and it was a, a dual sector, what we call a dual sector university with TAFE and higher education. I then moved on to a number of standalone TAFEs before I went back again then to Victoria University where I was initially appointed as the deputy director for TAFE, but there was a change of vice chancellor and the new vice chancellor recognised that 
um, venue was a, a university with a very high proportion of people who were the first in their family to go to university. Okay. And that what we needed, in fact, was a focus, a strong focus on how to ensure that those students are successful um, in a in a difficult environment where most of them had many hours of part-time work to support themselves and so on. So she created um, a role in Pro Vice-Chancellor Teaching and Learning, which I was the inaugural incumbent for. So I was there for about eight years and then, as I said, went to Tasmania and then on to Ames after that. Right. And, and so what do you think it was that drew you specifically to adult education as compared to, you know, educated children? Um, I think it is about the recognition that people who are open to and supported to learn for their whole lives have a set of skills that they can transfer all over the place. Um, people that learn for something specific or learn once and then the assumption is, well, you know that now, that's the end of that tend not to have the the confidence or the array of skills that, well, this is my view anyway, and it's backed up with quite a lot of the, the research. They tend not to be as confident. They don't have as tra much transferability in what they can do in their lives. Um, and so my interest um, has always been on vocational education, but particularly on that area of what are the employability skills or the transferable skills or the life skills or whatever you want to call them that need to be embedded in any, any learning and development arrangement, even if it's a, you know, half day workshop so that people can do it for themselves and learn from each other rather than being teacher dependent, which has never been, um, something I felt comfortable with anyway, because right. got the skills to do it for themselves mostly. Yeah. But the, the original sort of attraction to working in this space? Was it because, you know, you had some personal experience of, you know, seeing, uh, adults who didn't have this ongoing learning, you know, being disadvantaged, was that something within your sort of, you know, uh, sphere of influence or did you just go, oh, that seems like a pretty interesting thing to go uh, in life to? I think it's, I think it's both of those, but I came from a family, a very large, um, family. My mother was the fifth out of 10. Wow. Um, and they lived in, in regional Victoria, had a agricultural rural background. And I was the first of the, I think it was 39 grandchildren, but I kind of lost count. Um, I was the first in that family, um, in the grandchildren to actually go and do a degree other than learn to be a nurse or a teacher, which nearly all the women in the family were told to do. Right. Um, and, and my mother was always of the view that she would have liked, um, rather than being at a, um, a country high school where, you know, resources were limited, especially back, you know, around about the second world war time. Um, she actually won a scholarship at one stage to come to Melbourne, to go be a boarder at one of the private schools, but her family was concerned that, um, that wasn't fair because the other kids didn't have that opportunity. So she wasn't allowed to do it. And I think she always regretted that, that sort of access to a wider world with a focus on learning. Right. Um, so, and that sort of accorded with what I then found when I was, particularly when I was at VU, but also in TAFE where a lot of people ended up 
because they didn't have the requisites um, to go to university or to do other things. And I think it's great that TAFE exists because that was one of its fundamental um, precepts really was that was about access. Um, but then I sort of, you know, I went through this stage of, well, we have this kind of hierarchical sense in Australia and I think it comes from, you know, our forebears in, in the UK as well, that, um, education is at university is the be all and end all. And there isn't a legitimacy in trade training or training to be, uh, to do something. And that's partly because we had this, um, and we still have it to some extent, a bit of a reductionist view that, well, you only need to learn this much. You don't need to know all the rest. And my view has always been, well, if there's an opportunity for people to learn more than what they need to do to do a job, then let's make sure that what they're learning is valued and they can use it in other ways. Like being able to communicate or write or work in a team or use numbers or whatever it is. Yeah, I, I remember uh, going to a, a lecture many years ago where they were talking about in the Renaissance, it wasn't enough that you were skilled at your job. You know, you're expected to know about the arts, and, yep. you know, and be able to uh, uh, give back to community and, uh, and have a very broad range of interests in order to be regarded as being interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, that the idea of the Renaissance man or the Renaissance man. Yep. Whereas now, uh, it's much more about very narrow, but very deep expertise. And, uh, uh, so I understand what you're saying there. Uh, and so it'd be interesting, uh, to see how those trends play out in the future, because obviously, uh, you know, we're still living largely in a world where you go to school, you pick your career. So you choose your subjects, get a qualification, get married, have kids die. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas nowadays, I mean, the reality is, I mean, my children who are in their, uh, you know, early teens, they'll probably live to be over a hundred, assuming that we don't blow the world up. But, uh, you know, so this whole concept of, you know, my son, who's in grade nine, having to pick subjects now for his career. Yeah. So I, I find that whole thing completely ridiculous. I think it is, is too. And if you look, if you talk to people, you know, the barbecue chat, for want of a better um, analogy, um, they talk about all sorts of things that they do and are intending to do in their lives. And it's hardly ever, I became this and I've stayed that forever. There's a few professionals that might say that, like a doctor or an accountant. But then if you delve a little bit deeper, oh, well, I worked for this company and that was that. And then I did this project or, you know, I lived in, I worked in that hospital and then I went into private practice and then I worked overseas for an aid organization. It's a whole, it's a set of skills um, that are grounded in uh, being a capable and, and, and confident person that you can then apply those technical skills. So you can, can only be a surgeon if you feel confident doing it, or one would hope so. Otherwise, it's tricky for all of us. <laughs> for sure. So, um, I, think, I think it's an evolving thing. I mean, it's interesting in there's some other countries, and um, I've been and had a look at some of them. Finland's one, Germany's another one, where um, – Skills training is actually embedded in a broader framework of 
making sure that people can work in teams, that they understand how to work with priorities, that they can communicate, that they um, have the confidence to go and seek out networks and build, you know, relationships, all that sort of thing, because you really can't do any jobs all by yourself locked up in a room, not talking to anybody. No, I, I agree completely. I, I uh, have a Bachelor of Commerce and an Executive MBA, but I'll often say to people, I think the most valuable qualification was becoming a competent Toastmaster. And, uh, you know, uh, that has served me professionally, you know, far better than, you know, macroeconomics and, and some of these other things. And so, um, uh, Bill, tell us a little bit more about your uh, PhD. That sounds quite interesting. Um, well, that was um, an interest that I've always had, as I said, in professional learning and work-based learning. And I've also always been very interested in how, uh, in education particularly, but more generally, how leadership and management work together and how people develop those skills and and use a range of skills as strategies in those sorts of roles. Um, and I had been doing some reading about professional learning and work-based learning and, and um, knew someone who was undertaking a doctorate uh, at Middlesex, which at the time was leading quite a lot of work um, globally around what they call professional studies, but not professional studies so you can be a professional professional studies that actually allow you to develop skills to do a whole range of things. And so um, my thesis topic was about developing um, educational leadership skills through work-based learning. And it was about um, what is leadership and what is management in those contexts. And my research was actually with a lot of um, middle managers, if you want to call them that, though they hate being called that, um, in universities and TAFEs who um, had either been thrust into or found themselves in roles where they were expected to be leaders and managers, but hadn't really been equipped to be them. And part of that was about, well, have we been giving those people enough time and resources to be able to reflect on their what they're learning in their role and then uh, be able to apply that learning in different contexts. So if you learn how to do um, project management because you've got a project to do, then why don't we sit and talk for a while about what you learn about project management that you can apply when the next project comes along. Or if you had a um, an issue with one of your staff and you had to work with HR and resolve it, what did you learn out of that that you can then take somewhere else? So that was the focus of my research, which essentially came up with the view that um, you can read as many textbooks as you like on leadership and management, but it's only when you get out there and do it and have the capacity and the support and the networks to be able to reflect on that, that that really becomes embedded learning that you can then transfer to other contexts. And so as a result of having done that PhD, because again, from my own experience, going and doing an MBA where you do a subject on leadership and it's all very theoretical and often the person who's teaching it has not really had a lot of, you know, their own personal practical experience leading organizations. Uh, so you invest no doubt a substantial amount of your time in, into doing this PhD and 
and coming to these conclusions. What's the intention in, in terms of the application of that now, you know, either through VDC or through, uh, you know, other channels? Um, well, I've certainly used that form of thinking a lot. Um, I'm also on the committee of management of a local um, neighbourhood learning centre for adult learning centre. And I also am on a national advisory board related to um, um, the migrants and refugees settling in the country and, and how, that, how that can be enabled. And so when you're thinking about governance, for example, um, and my role as chair is very focused on making sure that we've got all the governance matters um, being addressed. But you don't address them in isolation. You address them in the context of what is this, what does a good organisation look like? What are the sort of systems and processes that we need in place so that we can put our hands on our hearts and say we're doing a good job rather than because we can get ticked off by uh, auditors who, of whom we have many. Yep. Um, and I think that uh, that that sense of um, governance is one thing. Obviously, over my many years in management and senior management roles, I've had a lot of um, experiences working with people and sometimes um, in difficult circumstances or they're having difficult circumstances that, and that in, interfaces with their work. Um, how do you make workplaces recognise the fact that there's a whole human working there, not just a worker who does a job from, you know, nine till four? Those sorts of things, I think, are all really important and I use them. I also use, and we've tried, I try and use this in my chairing a little bit as well. Um, one of the things in work-based learning is that idea that if you learn something, make the most of it by critically reflecting on how you learn, what you learn and how you can apply it in other ways and what are one of the do's and don'ts. So that, that idea of, um, and sometimes we're better at it than others, depending on the length of our agendas, but having a bit of space to reflect on, did we do a good job in addressing that issue? Are, are there things we could do better next time? That sort of, I suppose in a, in many ways, it's continuous improvement, but unfortunately, that terminology's got very caught up with um, uh, auditing for the sake of auditing, rather than auditing because you want to do things better the next time and you want to be as excellent as you can be. Yeah, so I think uh, you know, in business, often so many things are happening. You're making so many decisions on the fly. No sooner have you completed something, then you're on to the next task. That so to have that opportunity, that space to actually have some kind of formal, you know, structure to have that period of reflection uh, would be very valuable. Yeah. I think one of the other And it's my shortcut when you have to do something similar next time because you can draw on it. Okay, so what did we say we learned last time that we want to apply this time? Definitely. Um, so it's actually a sort of um, a sensible kind of strategy as well as one that uh, I think everyone likes the opportunity at the at the end of a board meeting or even at the beginning of a board meeting to have a bit of reflection time and and talk about well what are the key issues is there something on the agenda that we should be bringing up to the front because it's on everyone's minds um did we really need to address that in this much detail in the board meeting or could we have you know done that in a subcommittee those sort of i mean it 
it t- comes down to very practical things, but it's that skill you've got to develop about reflecing on your own yep. self and, and how you do what you do. Mm. And so what originally uh, uh, drew you to joining the board of the BDC? Um, I think because uh, I was in, in tapes at the time when it was first instigated and had had the view for a while that um, the ever more demanding um, administrative roles that vet facilitators were playing meant that the amount of time and capacity they had for learning, for their own learning and being able to apply that to their students' learning was a struggle. And when the TAFE Development Centre, as it was initially, it came about, I thought, hallelujah, it's, it's, we recognise that we need to actually give facilitators and trainers not time out, time in their learning um, and give them the skills to be able to multiply the impacts of that learning in their day-to-day work without dragging them necessarily away from that work, yep. using the work as the basis where they were doing the learning. Um, and so I had obviously made sure that um, many of the staff that I was responsible for engaged in programs and opportunities that were, were provided by the centre. Um, and um, I was then contacted, um, I think that's what happened. Yeah, I was contacted by the person who was the chair at the time and said, look, you seem to be really interested. We know you've done that study and whatever else would you like to to um, put in application for the board, which I did. And uh, then it was, what, two or three years later that you were uh, promoted to the role of chair? Yes. Well, that came about um, through um, unfortunate circumstance in a way because um, the person who was the chair at the time was unwell and had to take leave of absence for quite a period of time. And so um, I stepped into the role as a... um, on a secondment arrangement, I suppose, out of my director chair and into the chair chair. Uh, And then um, I can't quite remember what the the process was or what happened first, but eventually I ended up being confirmed in that role anyway. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, you've spoken a lot about uh, ongoing professional development and education and so on. So, you know, Moving from a essentially an executive role into a board role and then now into a chair role, what are some of the things that you've done personally to upskill, you know, yourself in relation to taking on these responsibilities? Um, I think that started before I was in the role, actually, because doing a lot of that thinking about leadership and management necessarily meant I engage with issues of um what is an operational role? What is a governance role? What is a strategic role? If such a thing exists, I don't think you can be operational without being strategic, but lots of the literature does. Um, and so I'd done quite a bit of thinking about um, the sorts of demands on people, particularly at that middle level management level, um, in terms of expectations about them understanding governance requirements and the whole quality assurance thing is an example of that really. And it's about um, 
being able to stand beside what you're doing and actually reflect on, is this the best way to do it? Can I demonstrate that that's the fairest way? Is it the most equitable way? Are there quality outcomes coming for the, the student or the client? Um, and it was yet another example in my research of something that was ex assumed to be um, what you did in those leadership and management roles, but no one had really done much thinking about, well, how do you get to the point where, you know, you walk, walk out on Friday afternoon and you're a, a teacher or you're a um, program coordinator and you walk in on Monday morning and you're the head of department. How do you actually get all that stuff? Um, and being in organisations that are always um, resource hungry, they don't always give you the time to slowly work your way through that. There is an assumption that if you're an educator, you know how to educate yourself as well. But yeah. um, so I did quite a lot of thinking in, in my um, doctorate about the different aspects of the role and what that meant. Um, I was also on, uh, went on to the Vet Development Centre with a view to practising some of that governance, sort of distancing myself and then seeing what are the strategic issues that I can add value to rather than being down in the detail operational role that I had at work. And I was there, you know, for about, well, I was chair actually and I was still um, working at that time. So I was on, in the daytime, I was operationalizing, managing, leading in a, in a very sort of operational CIO role. And then I go off to the board meetings and have to think about, okay, I need to take off a few layers and put some other layers on to be in that governance role where it's about, essentially governance is about two sides of the same coin, which is risk on one side and strategy on the other and how you balance the two. And so that was a good learning for me, which, um, and I was on a couple of other advisory committees and project control groups and things at the time and through work and through associated things with work. So I got quite a bit of time to practice that. Very good. And I did a, I did a master's of educational leadership before I did the doctorate. And one of the subjects was about strategy and governance, I think. So I've done a bit of the reading, but not the practicing. But that, that right. <laughs> I, I think you, you raised an interesting point there. You know, this ongoing um, difference of opinion about whether CDOs can become good chairs. Uh, because as you say, you know, when you're in that capacity, CEO, COO, um, et cetera, you're very much in the tactical operational execution mm -hmm. and then moving into, uh, essentially, as you say, governance risk strategy role, uh, where the CEOs, uh, can make that transition well. And I think that there's plenty of examples where they do do it well and, you know, plenty of examples where they don't. I think it's, um, from my own experience, um, I started think, thinking differently about some of that um, because I was in a senior management role that was reporting to boards for uh, probably 20 years, I suppose. Yeah. So you have to almost put on your board hat when you're writing a briefing paper for the board and think, what do they need to know? Um, what are we going to commit to? How do we address the risks? How does this lead to the strategy? What's the recommendation I want to put um, usually in concert with the CEO, CEO at the time. So I think for people who are 
um, doing work, supporting boards on committees or executive officer roles or senior management roles where they're asked to provide briefing papers or recommendations. That's all good grounding for thinking like a director. Yeah. And now looking towards the future, uh, Bill, in terms of uh, VDC, what are some of the things that you're excited about over, say, the next two or three years? Um, well, I'm excited about the new Victorian Skills Commission, which um, came about um, in the second half of last year. And that was essentially bringing together a whole lot of components of what had essentially been separate bits in Victoria. So, um, and VDC is now um, uh, under the umbrella of the Victorian Skills Commission. Um, and we had quite a lot of input to the discussion paper that was produced for the minister about what might be the priorities of that commission, including, you know, the importance of professional learning um, for individuals, but for the sector as well. Um, so that Skills Commission is beavering away at the moment on their, their overarching Victorian skills plan, which I think is coming out in the next couple of months. But we're pretty confident that we're thinking like they were, at least in terms of the discussion paper anyway, and the, the final discussion paper did pick up quite a few of what we recommended, which is things like um, mentoring for early career vet educators. And that's pretty important given the, the level of casualization that's occurred in the, in the workforce and the number of young people who want to make a career as a vet educator, but they haven't really had um, that support that comes with, you know, people giving you time to go and develop and learn skills and build networks and that sort of thing. So that's, that's a really important theme, I think. Um, obviously over the last couple of years, we've um, jumped into and been pretty successful at um, a digital learning strategy. And we were completely online in most of 20 and 21. We're trying to get a sort of a, um, um, blended approach for 22, although Omicron's hanging around longer than anyone wants it to at the moment. Um, so I think the whole digital thing and how do you make that a meaningful experience when people want to log in and do a quick 50 minute something or other in their lunch break at, at their workplace. Um, and I think we've got a little bit more thinking to do about, so how do we build in the really important, what we know is really important in professional learning, which is networking with other people outside of your organisation. Um, and learning from each other in the coffee break at the workshop or whatever it is. So we're looking at ways to make some informal op opportunities as well as more formal and um, very much work-based. So come to this workshop with a project that you're working on now and let's use that as the basis for learning how to do project management, that kind of approach. So that's, that's um, really important and we've, you know, put some new great equipment in into the VDC offices that are going to help us to do that blended approach. Uh, it's also a great opportunity to make sure that people in regional Victoria and in fact in the other states are able to participate in programs without the cost of travel and the time that travel takes as well. And I think we've had lots of feedback um, in our uh, satisfaction surveys and things about the fact that it's so good to be able to engage and then go back to work and not have to take a whole day out to travel into Melbourne. But that's balanced with that, as I said before, that issue about 
but I want to learn how people do this in other places and see if I can learn from them as well. So that's what we're working on. Um, we're looking at um, developing some scholarships to um, support the sector in new ways of doing things, um, new opportunities. Um, I think there's going to be um, a pretty big emphasis across VET in all states, including Victoria, on what are the skills in need and they're going to be the ones that are going to be funded. Um, so how do we insert professional learning into that? So obviously the health professions um, and the vocational training that's associated with that is going to be really important over the next little while. Building up trades again um, will be really important. Getting the retail sector back, getting hospitality back in ways that don't just look at, we've got to get money into the bank, but actually see that what's going to get that money in there is well, well supported, skilled staff to do it. So I think that's, that's pretty important too. And I mean, we've got lots of other things, um, mentoring for, um, uh, vet educators. We've just recently implemented, a um, a way of categorizing what we offer for beginning intermediate and experienced, I think it is educators so that we're not, we can target what we're providing more specifically to what people know already and make sure that their precious time is being spent on what's really going to add value for them rather than a repetition of what they might've already heard. So we're doing lots of those sorts of things. Um, and I think Part of that too is about how do we um, market the Vet Development Centre, not just as a training provider or a professional learning provider, but as a go-to place for people's own recognition that they need to do their own professional learning and they need support to be able to do it. And we're looking at um, whether in fact over time we can get accreditation um, for some of the programs linked to the professional status of vet educators as well. So that's a sample. There's lots to be excited about. <laughs> I'm thinking, I think your retirement doesn't look as though it's going to be a short of things to do. <laughs> lots of projects and lots of positivity, which is fantastic. Uh, so look, before we wrap it up, because I recognize you've probably got plenty of other things to get on with, Bill, uh, uh, so when do you think you'd be jumping on a plane and going to Hong Kong? Oh, I don't know. Certainly not at the moment. Um, they've got um, very few flights going there. They're extremely expensive. And if you go there, you have to do three weeks of hotel quarantine yeah. first. So um, I'm hoping later this year, or even if we can't go there, maybe my son and his wife can come here. But um, um, people are not that keen on taking four weeks off on leave so that they can spend three weeks in hotel quarantine. Oh, yeah. So I can't blame them for not coming here and, and we can't go there. So maybe by the end of this year, I hope. My um, son, son was turned 40 last year. He was turning 41 next week, actually. And he was going to have his pseudo 40th in Melbourne next week. So it looks like it'll be his pseudo 40th in February of 2023 at the rate we're going. <laughs> My uh, my cousin just uh, went back to see her family in the UK, and she said going there was so simple. Absolutely no drugs on. Coming back was just 
absolutely an administrative nightmare, as well yeah. as, of course, in quarantine and so on. Yeah, so I, I uh, you know, my daughter uh, is so keen to get on a plane and go overseas. She's never been overseas, and yet I, I, I can't see me taking her overseas probably until 2024. No, I, I, my um, not the daughter-in-law in Hong Kong, my daughter-in-law that's in Melbourne is a New Zealander and her family's all over there. And um, so she wants to try and get there this year. I think that's about as far as we might be able to get internationally for a little while yet. Maybe. Well, Belle, look, I really appreciate your time. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, Very interesting. You. Sounds as you're doing some great stuff there uh, with BDC and I wish you all the best. And uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. And all the best to you too. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.